0: Before I begin, let me say, you know, we, we pray um, every Sunday morning before we begin. We, we thank the Lord for everything that he's done. We pray for the lost, and we also pray for a spirit of, of unity and love among us. And for those of you who were here Wednesday night, Jody and Rama visited the church with the kids as they were moving through town, and I had an opportunity to speak with Jody, uh, our missionaries in, in Mexico, remember, uh, after Wednesday night. After Bible study, and he said, I just want you to know of all the churches that we visit, this church has such a spirit of unity and peace within it. He said, We just feel like we can breathe. And I immediately began to thank God, and then he reminded me, You asked me for that every Sunday. You do realize I'm going to do those things, right? And I was like, Well, I kind of forgot. But I am so thankful for what we enjoy in this church. But you need to know it is not because of any particular person or group of people. It is because of the sweet spirit of the Lord that answers our prayers and continues to do those things. And I pray that we would continue to call out to God to have his hand of blessing on us as we can enjoy seeing the saved or or seeing the lost come to saving faith and enjoy a sweet spirit among us. And then as we come before God in worship, that we would worship in spirit and in truth, meaning that we would humble our hearts and allow the Word of God to change who we are as a people of God. Now as we come before the Word this morning, I pray for the same response that God would give me words that make sense, words that are undeniably faithful to His truth and not my own. And I also pray for your hearts that you would hear the Word of God just like you would draw your next breath, or sit at the table before your next meal, that you would seek the Word of God and enjoy the Word of God that much, that it actually breathes life into you when you hear it and obey it. But in the Word of God, we've been in Romans 8 for several weeks now. We have a few more weeks to go. But we've been looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And hopefully you understand now that the Spirit leads us in life in every regard. In fact, He's the one at work in bringing us to life. Remember, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. And so we rely upon the Holy Spirit in seeing someone go from darkness to light, right? Someone being raised from the dead, we rely solely upon the Holy Spirit and His power to to bring that to effect. But it's also the Spirit of God who walks us through life. Remember, Paul has talked about this in Romans 8. We walk in the Spirit, right? We don't walk in the flesh anymore. We've gone from death to life. And so now we walk in the Spirit, literally walking in life. But the Spirit even does more than that, not only bringing us to life, but walking us through life. But the Spirit is leading us somewhere, and He is leading us to eternal life. He is working to bring us home, so to speak, into the presence of God. So you could faithfully say that the ministry of the Spirit is all of life. Everything that He does has everything to do with life. And so this gift that God has given us through the gospel is absolutely precious to us. We would not understand life like we do were it not for the faithful work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. But not only does He have a ministry of life, but He also has a ministry of identity. And I don't speak about this much. I haven't really come across it in the text as much. But it is absolutely necessary on your part to work this into your heart about who you are as a child of God. We've seen in Romans 8 how the Spirit works to give us an attitude toward God in which we see Him as our personal Father. No longer do we see God removed. I remember thinking of of Him in that way as a child. He's kind of there. I'm absolutely terrified to offend Him or make Him angry. I know He did everything and I know He can do everything. But as far as seeing Him in a personal way, me crying out to Him as my personal Father, I didn't know Him in that way. But now having been born again through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's done that work in my heart where I enjoy spending time with my Father. Father. I make time for my Father and I usually almost without fail come up here on Saturday night and crumple down on this, these steps right here in this place and I begin talking to my Father. It's a whole different relationship now. And the reason that I feel that way is not, not because of anything I've done, it's solely because of what the Holy Spirit has done in my heart. I see Him that way and I can't wait to meet Him face to face to stand in the presence of my Holy Father who made me, who loved me, who redeemed me, who has called me to Himself. But the Spirit even does more than that, right? He convinces our heart through the work of the Spirit. He gives testimony to our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. Now this is a place that we desperately need to work on, and I don't mean to visit so much of what we talked about last week, But the Spirit needs to confirm and you need to hear Him confirming that you are indeed a child of God because we forget that. And that can work in two ways because sometimes we're so broken we forget who we are and we can't possibly believe because of the things we've done or how we've acted or what we've said that we could ever be a child of God. And I know you've been there and I know you've wept over that. But you do realize that sweet conviction that sweeps through your soul that you are indeed a child of God comes from the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that takes away the doubt. And He's the one that fills you with confidence. But I said it works in two ways. He's also the one that brings about that conviction when you're not acting like a child of God. He's the one that brings that to bear upon your soul, that heaviness and that weight... Don't you ever run from that? Don't you ever despise that? You rejoice every time that you sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit because He's treating you like a son. For what father does not discipline his son? And so that sweet confession of the Spirit or that sweet testimony works both ways wherever we need Him to work. Like I said last week, He is the perfect physician knowing exactly what type of medicine we need for the the moment. And He's always there ministering to our soul. And then I, I wound up last week with this reality that I continue to be impressed with. The Spirit leads us. Now hopefully as a child of God you, you desperately, or you know how desperately you need the leadership in your life. I mean without leadership we wander about from place to place. The text often uses the word groping. We're just groping about without the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And God has loved us so much that He has placed the Spirit within us to lead us. We no longer grope. We walk about confidently knowing that we walk in the Spirit in a way that pleases the Father. So that's where we've been. And we've been in some very high and wonderful places in order that worship might be brought forth in our heart because of these things. But Paul takes up, he moves us one step higher with these very next words. Because since we are the children of God, we are heirs. Now we all understand what it means to be an heir, right? Children of parents are heirs of the parent's inheritance. And I think it's that way in almost every culture, at least every culture that I've ever studied or been before, or been a part of, or I've seen, That's always the case. The parents pass down their inheritance to their children. And so what does it mean when Paul says that we are heirs? And certainly you could run all over the text trying to define that, and you could find dozens upon dozens of passages. But I think if we'll stay in Romans 8, we'll understand exactly what Paul wants us to understand about being an heir And if you'll notice with me in verse 17, the first thought that Paul wants to place in our minds about being an heir is, if we're children, heirs also, and then he says this, heirs of God. You can take that in two ways, and I take them as both. God as our Father, we are His children, therefore we receive His inheritance. But I think Paul means more than that. In fact, I think he's driving at this thought, God Himself is our inheritance. The grand prize, the most wonderful thing you will ever receive is God Himself in personal presence. You know, this has always been the desire and the problem. Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of God in the garden... And when they sinned and rebelled in Genesis 3, we think about them being removed from the Garden of Eden, but that's not near as bad being plucked out of paradise is nowhere near as bad as seeing the separation between them and the personal presence of God. That was the worst part. And as you walk through the text, you see the Father restoring that presence gradually. The first time that we see the presence of God restored with the people of God is where? In the book of Exodus, Right? God calls His people out of Egypt. He has them to construct a tabernacle. And the presence of God comes down and fills that tabernacle and all the nation falls on their face worshiping God. But it was still limited. Because how many people could go into the Holy of Holies into the personal presence of God? One man. How often? One time a year. And so you're like, well, you know, I'm so glad... That I can see the tabernacle and I know where the presence of God resides among us as a people. But I'm telling you, it just don't quite sit right with me. There's something missing. They had to have known that. And and of course, where we sit in, in our day, we understand that there was something missing. Only one man could do that. And only one man could do that one time a year. And so we needed God to do more. And then He does more. When we get to the Gospels, He sends His Son. And what does the text say? Curtain of the temple is torn in two. And then we ourselves can walk into the presence of God into the holy of holies, right? We can approach the throne of grace with boldness and now our desire has been fulfilled, but not totally, right? There's more. There's so much more. Because one day you and I will be glorified, we will be made like Him and we will know the presence of God like we've never known before and we'll know it for all of eternity and we will enjoy His abundant grace and mercy and compassion and love like we've never known. That's what we want. That is the only thing that will fulfill your heart and life, let me tell you. You're not going to feel fulfilled in any stretch of the imagination until you're standing before God, glorified yourself in His presence, and then you're going to know for sure, I am satisfied. I have no other need, nor will I ever be in want for the rest of eternity. I have it all. Because you will have received your inheritance as God Himself. So when we talk about heirs. First thought that I think Paul wants to understand is, you get God. As a child of God, you get God. And I don't think Paul's changing at all. I think he's expanding when he adds this second phrase. Go back to verse 17. As children heirs also, heirs of God and, what? Fellow heirs with Christ. We, as the children of God, are fellow heirs. I actually like the NIV here, believe it or not. It uses the word co heirs. We are the co heirs with Christ. In other words, we share in the inheritance that the Son, the one Son, has received from the Heavenly Father. And the writer of Hebrews tells us what that inheritance is. Hebrews 1, verse 2. You know what Christ has received? Everything. Christ is literally the heir of all things because he is the only Son. And he has received the whole entire inheritance from the Father. And then Paul says, but you're co-heirs with the Son. And you're like, no, this thing, this is is too good to be true. I can't believe that this would be possible. I mean, I was the rebellious child. I was the self-willed, strong-willed child. I was the one that turned from my Father and went my own way. And you're telling me because of what he's done, now I'm co-heirs with the one true Son? If it were not for grace, it would not be so. But because it's all of grace, it is absolutely true. We are co-heirs with the Son. Now, I'll give you more reasons for that because we've talked about this time and time again as we walk through Romans, about this vital union that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember back in Romans 5 and 6 as it was, as we walked through justification, it said that His death has become ours. We share in death. The death that He died is our death. Not only we share in death, we share in life. When He was raised, we were raised in Him. So His death is our death. His life is our life. And then we come to this thought. His inheritance is our inheritance. I told you, Paige and I share in everything, Right? When her mother passes, the inheritance that will be passed down will come to her, but because we are made one, it will come to us. And likewise, when my parents pass and the inheritance comes down, the portion that comes to me and my sister, it will come to not only me, but it will come to her as well. Because we've been made one in Christ. We share all things. But through the gospel, we've been made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in a great sense, in a sense that is undefinable and unexplainable in reality, nonetheless true, we share as co heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul even gives us more, though. Look what he says again in verse 17 We're heirs of God, we're fellow heirs of Christ, or with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So the last thought that Paul wants to bring to our minds about this is our inheritance has something to do with glory. Now Paul, I don't know if you've noticed or not, hopefully you will in the next few weeks, that's where he wanted to get, and that's where he's going to settle in now for the next several passages. He wants to talk about glory. In fact, again, notice the end of verse 17, so that we may also be glorified with Him, and then run over to verse 30. Notice the last word there. These whom He predestined, He also called. These whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also what? Glorified. Paul says, I've made it back. I've made it all the way back around to where I want it to go. And this is precisely why Romans 8 is the mountaintop of Romans. Because if you'll remember in Romans 1, we exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. In other words, what that means is, like Calvin said, our hearts are nothing more than idol-making factories. All of us are this way. We turn away from the God of the Bible, the God who's revealed Himself in creation... Uh, generally and specifically in His Word, and we refashion Him in our own hearts after our own desires, and we turn Him into a golden calf of some way and shape and form in different areas within our life. He makes us uncomfortable here, so we turn it. And He makes us uncomfortable there, and so we don't mention it. And He makes us uncomfortable here, and so we adjust that. Because we are prone to making idols, and we've exchanged the glory of God. And by the time He gets to Romans 3, what does He say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've abandoned glory. And so Paul starts to work, right? We're going through justification. We're going through sanctification. And he gets to Romans 8 and he's like, I've made it all the way back to glorification. In other words, God starts in Genesis 3 and works throughout time and space to return to that glory. And here Paul starts in Romans 1 and by the time he gets to Romans 8, he's like, I've made it back, back to glory. We enjoy the glory of the presence of God. Our inheritance has everything to do with glory. Now he works this out a little further in a little more detail. Notice with me in verse 18. Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, we're about to see some glory. And it's going to be absolutely unimaginable glory. Now there is a guy in the Bible, in the Old Testament, who saw some glory. What was his name? Moses. Moses, I know where you've been. Can't even look at you. You've been back up on the mountain, haven't you, Moses? I have. Why would they say that? Because God or because Moses being in the presence of God, that glory wore off on Moses, so to speak. And when he came down the mountain, his face was aglow with the glory of God. Made him put a sack over his head. And what was the thing that Moses wanted most when he asked God that question after they had rebelled against God? God, show me your glory. In other words, I've seen it, but the only thing that I could ask you, I want to I want to see more. I want to experience more of that glory. I can't get enough of that glory. So God, if I could put one question before you, it is this. Show me your glory. So whatever it is, it's going to be absolutely glorious and it's going to have a tremendous bearing on who we are as the people of God. But this is also the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 17, before Jesus goes to Calvary, this is what He asks the Father. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. You're going to see glory. And it's absolutely going to blow you away. And there are some moments in Scripture that come to mind. I'll talk about a couple in a moment. But one of those moments perhaps is when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured. And I wonder if that experience will be something like that for us. Because James and John hit the deck. Peter hits the deck too. And I imagine all of us will fall flat on our face when we stand in the presence of the glory of God. And there'll be some of, the, some of us, like Peter, who just can't keep your mouth closed, got to say something, and when you get finished saying it, you'll realize I really shouldn't have said anything, just like Peter did, but will be absolutely overwhelmed at the glory of God and fall down. It will be absolutely so glorious. That's the only other word that I can use. His glory will be so glorious, we will be absolutely swept away. So we're going to see glory. But it even gets more than that. Look at verse 17. We're going to share glory. If children heirs also of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. You're not just going to see glory, you're going to share in glory. And again, the reason you share in the glory of Christ is because you share in Christ. Because of the vital union that God has made with you in the Son. You're going to share in glory. John describes it in this way. And he's right on spot, of course. Beloved John writes, We are children of God, and has it not yet appeared what we will be, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. And that's about as much as we know. But when we are with Him, we will be like Him, and to be like Him is to share glory with Him. We're going to see glory, we're going to share in glory. And then look at verse 21. I think it, it even goes further. We're going to possess glory. Romans 8 21 Creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to the corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We're going to possess glory. I'm sorry I can't explain that much more. That's what the text says. We're going to see it. We're going to share in it with Christ. And as the children of God, we're going to possess a glory to some measure. Now, I realize that once again, I find myself backed into a corner having to talk about something I know practically nothing about. Glory. In fact, you have nothing to compare it to because it is incomparable. In fact, that's what Scripture says. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Glory is far beyond all comparison. We don't understand it because there's nothing that you can compare it to. There is no illustration to do it justice. It's almost like the Trinity. The best thing you can do is just say nothing. Nothing. It's there. We understand the reality of it, but because we have nothing to compare it to, we don't understand just how glorious it is. We say the phrase, never cease to be amazed. You do realize that's going to be your eternal state. I just can't get over this glory. I'm just amazed at this. How long have we been saying this? We've been saying this for like several million years. Now. I know, but I just can't get over this glory. We've been here for millions of years and I can't get past the glory of God. It is beyond compare. And that is what awaits us as the children of God. I can offer you some words I've been using along the way. Inconceivable, incomprehensible, indescribable. But that is about as much as we can say. There's a couple of words in the text that I found that might help us a little bit more. Look at verse 18 and let's let's work at this give this word a little bit of thought in respect to glory. Paul writes for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory. In other words, if you were to take the most significant moment in your life, perhaps losing your life for Christ, being martyred for your faith, God says that doesn't compare. It's not worthy. So I draw this conclusion. There's nothing that's worthy to compare. So if you want us to understand glory, you better start with the word worthy and realize nothing is worthy. Nothing is worthy in the presence of glory. Nothing. It is invaluable. Again, it is indescribable as the glory of God. Nothing compares to its worth. The second word that I would give you is found in 2 Corinthians 4:17. Paul writes this, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, for far beyond all comparison. Not only is it worthy, it's weighty. And you know he's not talking about in a, any sort of physical sense. He's talking about in a comparative sense, once again, nothing's worthy, nothing is that valuable. Nothing is that weighty as the glory of God. I don't know that this applies, but this is what came to mind when I was thinking about this, 1 Corinthians 2. And if you're worried about to quote this out of context, I think I'll fix that. But here Paul writes, "...things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard." and have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Now he goes on to say, but to us, God has revealed them through the Spirit. And I'm like, well, He had not revealed a whole lot. We don't understand glory, but you've given us a few people who have witnessed the glory of God, and we've watched their response, and we've seen its effect. You've given us a couple of words like worth and weight, but nonetheless we're reminded by the Apostle Paul, you really can't fathom the depth of the awesomeness of the glory of God. And it awaits all of us as the children of God, as our inheritance. Now I could stop right there, and hopefully you're motivated enough to go running out that door and forsake your sin and forsake the rest of your life and live for the glory of God we surely know enough to do that. We surely know enough to allow every word that rolls out of our mouth to be for the glory of God, to allow every thought that goes through our mind to be for the glory of God, to allow every action, every ounce of worship, every bit of life to be lived for the glory of God. We know enough certainly to do that. I'll tell you something about creation Creation just can't wait to see it. Look at verse 19. Now keep in mind, we're in the context. I'm just pulling out 19, but we're still in the context of the glory of the children of God. Verse 19, Paul writes, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now there's two words here that Paul uses. One is translated anxious longing. And that literally means the stretching of the neck. In other words, here's the picture. Creation's doing this right here. Because it knows that just over the horizon, the dawn of the kingdom of God will come, and the children of God will be revealed. And all of creation, and when he speaks of all of creation, he's talking about everything that's not human is anxiously waiting, stretching its neck to get a glimpse just over the break of the horizon so it can see this glory as the children of God come forth. It gives us another word. Notice with me, waits eagerly. That's one word that gives a picture of walking down the road waiting for the arrival of someone. And it's almost always used in the second advent of Christ. Waiting eagerly for the return of Jesus. So creation waits eagerly. Here's a picture of this. You guys know that Paige and I have been abandoned by our children, right? And and just so happens that two of them are home. Every time one of them comes home, we have this app on our phone that probably all of y'all have, and it goes off when they get close. And when we hear it go off, we walk out the door, we walk up the driveway, and we're standing in the driveway every single time one of our kids pulls in the driveway now. We don't wait in the den. No, 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 we're out in the driveway the only time we failed is when Emily was over at the house and she was more anxious than we were. So I said, you can go on out and greet John. I said, but we're coming behind you. That's how we are. We just can't wait to see their face. And God willing, Audrey and Jonathan will be rolling in here in two weeks and my neck's going to be stretching and I'm going to be standing in the driveway because I can't wait to see them and get my arms around them. The Bible describes creation... Waiting to see the glory of God in the children of God in the very same way. It's got its hands in his pocket, just pacing. When's this thing going to go down? See, creation doesn't have an app. It's got to wait on the move of the God the Father's hand. But it's longing, it's stretching, it's standing in the driveway, just waiting for the dawn of the kingdom of God and the glory of the children of God. That's how awesome this thing is. Now, commentators ruined my thought because they said that Paul is speaking poetic there. He's using anthropomorphism, one dollar word for, he's giving human qualities to something that's not human. He's not really meaning that creation is actually doing that. But I'm not buying it. And I'll tell you why I'm not buying it. And I'll take you to Luke 19, 37. You'll remember this. The whole crowd of disciples were standing near the the bottom of the Mount of Olives and they began shouting with loud voices, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And some of the Pharisees of the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus responded, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now, I don't think Jesus was being poetic at all. I think He literally meant... If my disciples were to fall silent in their worship of me in this moment, those rocks would begin to cry out in praises to me. And the reason I believe that is because he's God. And he can do anything he wants. And I don't consider him to be being cute or poetic in that moment. I fully believe if God wants rocks to sing, we will hear rocks break out in song. I'll give you one better than that, Isaiah 55 which is the gospel in Isaiah. But listen to these words. For you, talking about the consummation of, of the times where we are glorified, he says, for you will go out with joy, be led for with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And that's at us as the children of God. When we are revealed in our glory, it's got pictures of mountains singing and hills breaking out and shouts and the trees clapping their hands. And you go, oh, Brother Joy, trees don't have hands. But I'm telling you, he's God. And if it happens, I told my kids yesterday, I'm going to be in the guy standing way far in the back going, I told you so. Look at those trees. They just can't get enough of the glory of God. Y'all, there's so much in store for us. Our inheritance as the children of God, again, is indescribable. I strain at the words, but I can give you the pictures in the text. It's going to radically, cosmically change all of creation in one moment, the very moment it's revealed. And we talked about this at the table yesterday. Creation has fallen, right? It's been radically affected by depravity. And yet you can go to some places that are indescribably beautiful. And then you're like, how is this going to get better? Abby and John are about to go to St. John's. And that's like me and Paige's favorite place. And we go there and we're like, how is this depraved? This is extraordinarily beautiful, right? And yet it's fallen. So creation knows that everything's about to be radically changed. And if that's going to be changed, I'm telling you, it is indescribable, incomprehensible, unattainable in our imagination what it's going to be like in the kingdom of God when the glory of God comes. So, that's the top of the mountain. That's Romans 8. But we're in between this period of time. We're in between being born again and being glorified, which Paul calls the present time. And you would think that in the present time, because of what we are going to receive, that everything would just be absolutely fine. Everything would be going our way in an increasing manner. We would go from blessing to blessing. Every step would lead to greater blessing as we arrive at that crowning moment at the return of Christ. But that's not the case. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul wants to give us two words that help describe our present time as we await the glory to come. And the very first word is the word groaning. Totally unexpected. How in the world could we be in a state of groaning? And I almost titled this sermon, Groaning for the Glory of God, but that's literally what it is. And the first one to groan, notice verse 22. For we know that the whole creation, everything but humans, groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. All of creation is groaning. And the reason for the groaning is given in verse 20. Notice this. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. Now this is interesting. What a word. It it literally means purposelessness or without value. In other words, God has subjected all of creation to being in a state of no value. And again, my mind can't comprehend this because I immediately think of passages like, what is it, Psalms 19, where the heavens declare the glory of God? How could that be without value? And again, it's because of comparison. Creation knows what happened to Genesis 3. And we don't fully grasp that, but I've got some idea that it fully does. So in comparison to what it is now, it sees itself as purposeless. It sees itself as futile. It sees itself as under subjection to where God has placed it because of what took place in the fall. And creation's like, oh, I know what it was. And I know what it's going to be. And in comparison, the only thing that I can do is just groan. And so all of creation groans, waiting for what's about to take place. But creation is not the only one that groans. We groan. Look at verse 23. Not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we groan ourselves within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We're just like creation we know that we are not what we were designed to be. We were actually designed to be, or we are actually designed to glorify God in all things. I mean, my goodness, we were made to rule all of creation. And I think that's part of the reason that creation groans is because it's missing the leadership that it was designed to have. But nonetheless, you and I are not who we are going to be. And if you realize that, you are in a state of longing and groaning. And the reason that we groan is because we've been given the first fruits to the Spirit. We've already gotten a taste of this thing. And this gives some of us such relief because we think, wait a minute, I've got the Spirit in my life, but I have sin in my life, and that's so frustrating for me. Exactly, that's the groaning. That's how it's supposed to be. You see, the Spirit's leading you to the place where those groans will be removed. And He will fully animate your life in every way. And you will finally and fully be exactly who you were designed to be. But until that day, we groan. In fact, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5 chapter 2 as being unclothed. I started to take more time with this than I am right now, but you you do realize being naked in public was supposed to be shameful. It was a sign of judgment. God made a prophet walk around naked as a sign of judgment on the nation. We live in such a godless, immoral culture that not only is that not shameful, that's celebrated and promoted. It's so sad. But Paul says, you know what it's like not to be glorified? It's kind of like walking around publicly naked. You just feel so ashamed. You're just like, man, I'm telling you, I'm not not what I want to be right now. I feel like hiding almost. Because I know what's coming. And I'm gonna be clothed. And I'm gonna be clothed with glorified garments from heaven. And then I won't walk around in shame anymore. I won't groan for the state that I am in now. But they're not just sad groans. Look at verse 22. Their groans with a purpose, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. Well, that's a different kind of groaning. In John 16, we groan, and he uses the illustration of childbirth. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you in John 16, 20, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to a child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. So we don't groan without purpose. It's like a woman in labor pains. Is how creation is and how we are because we know that even perhaps tomorrow the birth of the kingdom of God will come. And all of our groaning will be swept away in a moment. And we will forever be filled with joy. I said there were two words, so let me run through the second one quickly. The second word that we experience in this state that we exist in now is the word suffering. And I'm like, wow, what two words for Paul to pick to describe where we are now. We suffer and when you hear the word suffer, you immediately think, and I think you should, suffering specifically for the cause of Christ. I knew I wouldn't have to look long. It took me about two minutes to find a recently persecuted Christian for their faith in Christ. Last Sunday, 40 Christians in Nigeria were in the midst of worship in a Baptist church, no less, and an Islamic group walked in guns and took 40 away. Last Sunday. Fifteen escaped. Twenty-five, they don't know. They don't know if they're waiting for the group to send a, a, you know, asking for money to get them back. Or if they've just killed them. But this is the lot of those who profess Christ all around the world. Every single day. And God says, this is your experience until the dawn of the kingdom of God and the revelation of the glory of God. This is how it will go for you. And I don't, Paul's pretty broad in his description here. I don't think he just means in that particular way, but certainly he does in that way. But you and I groan because we, we live in a fallen world. I remember the first time when we moved to the Northwest, you know, we went to Portland. I mean, come on. Kids were young. And we went to the particular place where they make cheese and ice cream, Tillamook. It's like one of the greatest places on the planet. But come on, we're in the Northwest. And it didn't take very long until after we'd walked in the door, to two women were going at it publicly, kissing and all this <coughs> stuff. And we grab our kids in shame and we lead them off in a different direction. And I groan and I suffer. And we will do that until Jesus returns. This world will grow more and more godless and more and more shameful. And the godly will continue to try and shield their children and explain things to their children and help their children process this godlessness that we live in. But for the time being, you and I have to suffer these experiences. But let me give you a worse experience than that. It better be your own sin. You suffer because of your own sin. And if you're not suffering in it, I'm deeply concerned for you. We ought to be ashamed. We ought to be embarrassed. I mean, don't forget who you are. You're a child of God. And you're going to groan with that and you're going to suffer with that until either you pass from this life or Jesus appears in the sky. One more thing, we suffer because of the experience of death. I thought thought about Eldon this morning. I walked into church and I said, Lord, I miss Eldon. And all of us miss somebody. And we got to suffer that until we see our Lord. And you need to know the moment that we see Him will be the moment that we will never experience death again. That suffering will be over. But God has said, until then, you're going to suffer with that. I could go on. We suffer because we belong to Him, John 15. We suffer because we pursue Him, 2 Timothy. But James says something the most interesting He says to count it all joy. And you're like, how bizarre. James, you're just out of place. But I think 1 Peter explains his joy a little bit better. Our suffering is a testimony of our faith because we have a hope. We're like creation standing on our toes, straining our neck, standing out in the middle of the driveway just waiting for all this to end but because we stand and wait for it to end we suffer and that is a testimony of our faith we don't suffer without purpose we anticipate glory we know tomorrow will be better we know that tomorrow will be glorious beyond measure and so our groanings and our sufferings are just a moment. And that's why Paul says they're momentary and light affliction. I'm telling you, Paul's right about that. We think they're heavy, but Paul's like, no, they're momentary and a light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. I'm telling you, when you get there, it'll be exactly like the birth of your child. You're writhing in pain in one moment. They hand you your daughter or your son the next moment, and you've completely forgotten You've completely forgotten what you just went through because you're so filled with joy at what you hold in your hands. That's what's for you as soon as Jesus appears in the sky. It's like holding your child for the very first time, and you could care less about what you just went through. It's all been swept away. One more thing. The ultimate reason that you and I groan and suffer is this. This is the path that the Father has firmly decided upon. This is the particular path to glory. Notice with me verse 17. If children, heirs, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed, notice, we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Now that is not saying don't misunderstand it. It's just like the passages that we dealt with in Romans 8 and 13 where it says, If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Remember, I told you at that time, it does not say you'll live if you will do this. That's No. It's not an imperative, it's an indicative. And this is not an imperative, it's an indicative. What it means is, Glory is not the reward for suffering, yet suffering is the path to glory. There is no other way. First comes the suffering, then comes the glory. And if you're like, why did He pick that way? Because that's the exact way He picked for His Son. And if we've been made one with the Son, we share death, we share life, we share inheritance, and we share the exact same road to glory. And that road is paved with suffering. Turn with me to Philippians 2, and we'll be done. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2 to remind you of this. Philippians chapter 2, let me begin in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also." God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him a name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who, are in the earth, or those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus started suffering the moment that He was born. When God became a man, He began to suffer. When that same God walked through His creation in which He made for His glory and saw how fallen and depraved and sinful and disobedient and rebellious it had become, He suffered. Can you imagine us whisking our children away trying to hide depravity from them? Can you imagine how ashamed you would be to walk behind Jesus through this world today? You'd be like, Lord, please close your eyes. You do not want to go in there. You do not want to see that. How shameful, right? Jesus suffered the moment He breathed His first as a Son of Man. And He suffered until He breathed His last as a man. And then the Bible said the Father glorified Him and seated Him at His right hand. The reason that we have to walk this path and the reason we must walk it by faith It is because it is is exactly the path that our Savior trod, And so as we walk this path, we do not walk in discouragement because we look back at verse 18 and remember these words, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Church, I wish that I could describe for you what you're about to receive. I tried to think of some silly analogy. I mean, I. But nothing does it justice. And it's literally tomorrow. The glory of God is literally yours tomorrow when our Savior comes. But today. We've been given purpose, and it's particular purpose. We are to walk the way that He walked, groaning the whole way, longing and waiting for what we will be. And we're to walk this whole way, listen, being thankful for suffering. And I'm gonna leave you here this morning. I'm not gonna fix that till next week, Lord willing. This is the part I cut out, but I think we need to sit in suffering. You know why? Because every single one of us spends the majority of our lives avoiding suffering and making our life pleasing and satisfying and enjoyable. And we run from groaning and suffering (coughs) and we forget its purpose. Now, certainly not weird and tell you to run toward it. I'm not asking you to join 25 people who are still prayerfully being held waiting on a ransom. I'm not asking you to be weird like that. But I am asking us and myself to recognize what it is. Why it's there. And to walk through it faithfully. Rejoicing God. Realizing that when we see His glory. We're going to be like, what are you talking about, man? <coughs> Suffer. No, no, never. It's not comparable. I can't even mention it. This is so awesome. But knowing what you're about to receive, could we please begin to live our lives for such wonderful things as the glory of God? Please repent. Please turn away from the things in your life that don't glorify the Father. And may every part of every bit of our lives glorify Him in every way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a timeless.